Hey, Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey, Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. So first, just a little personal log rolling. The March-April issue of my magazine, Brick and Elm, is out on newsstands now. It's our annual home issue, and it includes an exclusive photographic tour of the Frank Lloyd Wright home here in Amarillo. It's the most famous house in the city, but very few locals have seen it, and probably 99% of the population hasn't even heard about it. So we're really excited to introduce readers to this very extraordinary home. If you don't subscribe, I hope you'll go pick up this issue at Market Street, Market 33, Burrowing Owl, Barnes & Noble, or any of our other retail partners. Anyway, as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to Northwest Texas Healthcare System online at nwths.com. Today's guest is Angela Knapp Eggers. Angela is the Senior Managing Director at the Laura W. Bush Institute for Women's Health here in Amarillo. This organization was established to take a new approach to women's health care and now plays a national role leading women's health and gender-based medicine. And Angela's been in this role since 2010 after a variety of different careers, from her start as a ballet dancer to roles at Cactus Feeders and Lone Star Ballet. She's one of those people who you end up seeing in all kinds of places as a volunteer or as a board member. She's planning events. She's doing all kinds of things in the city. I wanted to have her as a guest on the podcast for several years now, and I'm glad we were able to make that happen. So here's Angela Knapp Eggers. Angela Knapp Eggers, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Jason. How are you? I'm doing great, and I'm glad you're here. I know that you are aware of the show. You've recommended guests to me in the past, which I appreciate. But I want to start with you, the same place I start with all my guests, and just ask you, why are you in Amarillo? So what brought you here in the first place? You know, my background is a little bit interesting. I grew up in Pampa. And I guess to some extent, I'm still a harvester at heart. (laughs) But I grew up as a ballerina, which most people don't realize. And in my years of the scholarships that I got, the Mm -hmm. education that I got for dance, and the opportunities that I got, plus a proposal, (laughs) which brought me to Amarillo. And I've been here since 1981. Okay. So I want to clarify, you say you were a ballerina. That's not just like a little (laughs) six-year-old in a tutu taking a class. You were a legitimate dancer. I lived it. That was all I wanted to do growing up. And God blessed me with a natural talent that I was determined to expand into something meaningful. Mm -hmm. And so I think in my years, I had like 19 ballet scholarships or something. I mean, I had a lot of people behind me encouraging me along the way. I got my degree in ballet performance, which I might not do today. I was going to say, I've known you for a while. (laughs) I've never seen you dance like that. Yes, I might not have done it that way today, but at the time, the opportunities presented themselves. And that growing up in Pampa was so much fun, I... Had a wonderful upbringing with a remarkable family. And even though I was a ballerina, I loved horses. Hmm. I rode motorcycles. I water skied. I did all the things my ballet teacher despised because she just knew I was going to get hurt along the way. But then I went to the University of Oklahoma and got my degree and doing Texas out Paladura Canyon, actually. I met my first husband 
And we got married, and I moved to Amarillo in 1981, and I've been here ever since. How many seasons of Texas did you perform in? I performed two years, and then I worked, which is funny, I worked on the costume crew one year and knew nothing about it. Um, I don't know if you remember Charlotte Brantley. She took me under her wing, and she kiddingly guided me through the season on sewing. I stunk at it, but... At that time, my husband was playing the lead, and it made sense for me to be there every okay. night. So that was fun. And then I co-chaired the 25 and the 35-year reunions for Texas. Right. So they have a big part of my heart. Okay. I How how long were you able – or tell me this. Like, did you ever take the steps that turned that passion for ballet and that – talent for it like did, did you want to make that a career like did you aspire to be a professional dancer somewhere in new york or anything like that <laughs> it's interesting that you ask that and I, I think about zach thomas when i think yeah. about that because i'm like white deer pampa lubbock i mean look how he grew and he moved on well i didn't have that kind of elevated talent and okay. i'll tell you i ended up at the school of american ballet for a while in new york i was in new york two or three summer three summers and I loved it. But when you step outside of a small town or even – I did real well at the University of Oklahoma, and I was part of a touring company. Mm-hmm. And But along the way, I taught a lot, and I choreographed a lot, and I did that for years even after I wasn't dancing anymore. But I really kind of wanted to be the big fish. And when you get into some of those big companies, the ones I was – interested in Mm -hmm. i would not have been that big fish yeah i mean the big fish in pampa or even the big fish at university of oklahoma it's not new york necessarily the same it's not new york city ballet for sure but i love 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 it still to this day and there's just something about watching that art that not because i can relate to it but it just makes me happy yeah it's just i don't know it's fortifying i love it when you arrived in amarillo got married got here in the early 80s like did you have an idea of what you wanted to do I mean once once the ballet thing you start to think okay now maybe what? this is not going to be a career right um you know you'd gone to college you had different experiences what was on your radar at that point it's funny when you ask that because think about people who go to college not knowing what they want to be when they grow up which is 90 percent of us right and I didn't know what I wanted to do Naturally, when I got married and moved to Amarillo, my mother worked for Cabot Corporation in Pampa. Okay. So she got me a job with Cabot Corporation in Amarillo, and I worked there for like seven or eight years. But I started getting involved with nonprofits in Amarillo, and I have had some involvement on almost every level with many of the nonprofits, whether I served as a volunteer or led their guild or their board or served on the boards. And so over a period of time, and I'm going to say this was maybe 25 or more years ago, I went, aha, nonprofit management. That's what I love. And a long time ago, I should have gotten some kind of a degree or certification or something in nonprofit management because that's where I really feel like I'm the most productive Hmm. And the background and the structure that I accumulated over the years of dance has helped me so much because you learn to be on timelines. You learn to accept criticism Mm -hmm. when it's helpful, of course. But all of those things that you learn as an artist kind of segues into anything that serves as outreach or the people in your community. So it happened kind of 
randomly for me, I suppose. But organically. I mean, if, it if was, you were that involved and, and started to see a passion forming. It's funny because at one time I was president of the Lone Star Ballet during a couple of their most difficult years. And at the end of the couple of years as a president of the board, I hired myself to work for the ballet. And then mm. I was there for seven, eight years or something. And I just, that volunteerism gave me a job which now has turned into the job that I love the very most, and it's nonprofit. I'm I'm interested in that sort of transition because I'm on a couple of boards, um, and you know you serve on a board, you come in in an advisory capacity. And every board member sort of has a specialty; they bring something to the table. But like I wouldn't want to be the executive director of any of the nonprofits, you know, that I've volunteered with or anything like that because it's it's a, such a different skill set from what I have. And I wonder, like, did you begin to realize when you were serving uh, on these boards that that maybe you had the skills in place to take it beyond just advisory and, and become the leader of the organization? When I look back on the history of my career, it's pretty diverse. I started out in the oil and gas business, and then I went into the cattle business. I was working in the cattle business for, like, Ten years. As a matter of fact, I worked for Paul Engler during the Oprah trial, which really? was really that's interesting. It was very so. Very, that was after Cabot. You uh-huh. okay? Well, I worked for Texas Cattle Feeders, and then I went into okay. Cactus Feeders, and then I ended up in academic medicine. And I thought, how in the world do I apply everything that I've done to academic medicine? But I think along the way, I realized very early on I'm kind of an organizational freak. And I don't know if that comes from choreography and the structure and mm-hmm. the discipline that I got at the bar in a ballet classroom. I don't know, because a lot of times creative people don't use both sides of their brains, but I do. Yeah. And I think that that's where I have found that my strength was, and it just naturally segued into nonprofit man- uh, somehow into nonprofit management. Okay, so I I had forgotten that part of, of your history, but I want to hear a little bit about what it was like working for Cactus Feeders, you know, during that high profile (laughs) period of time, high profile, not just because Oprah was here uh, and bringing attention, you know, to that case, but also that like you were working with the people on the other side of the case. And so anytime you pit yourself against Oprah, you know, there's probably a little intimidation or something there. It's big. Um, So tell me, tell me what that was like. Well, first of all, I'll tell you that I've known Paul Engler for a long, long time. I knew him way before I went to work for him, and I was his personal assistant. Okay. And working for Paul Engler, is it was challenging. It was demanding. It was one of the most rewarding educational things I've ever done. Hmm. If you like working with powerful, driven, let's-get-it-done people, I kind of thrive off of that. And I learned so much from him. And so when he decided to take on Oprah Winfrey, I thought, I better buckle up because this is not going to be easy. Yeah. And my husband at that time and I, we did all the demonstrative posters for the trial. Okay. And this is no exaggeration, easy 16, 18-hour days because we would go to court all day. Then we would get with the attorneys. We would develop the demonstratives right. at the end of the day, print them off, laminate. That's back in the day when you— Yeah, and these are like huge props you know, that are used yes. in the trial to show They're to huge. juries and stuff. They're huge. I learned a couple of things from that. Number one, one of the things I learned from Paul, Paul Engler is that if you're not willing to take a risk, then just sit on the couch. Hmm. Just don't get involved. If you're not—and I wasn't a big risk taker. 
because I didn't want to upset anyone. But I watched him and I thought, he's a man of integrity. He knows what he wants. He knows what is right. And he's willing to fight for it. And I would never have taken that because Oprah's bigger. Right. And she has more of an audience and she has more of a following. And she has, I don't like to use the word cult-like following, but she almost does. Right. She was so revered. And so in the end, when it came out that freedom of speech won, I was really disappointed hmm. because I believe in freedom of speech, but I believe in freedom of true speech. Right. And that was not the case in that trial. And I thought, I don't, I don't understand this. So I kind of thought that maybe celebrity won over integrity. Right. And it was a little bit of a disappointment, but boy, was it a journey. <laughs> It was fun, actually. And it, it's interesting to think about um, when you talk about the the size of Oprah's audience. That Engler, at the time and, and still today, like is enormously successful. Just yes. has a huge footprint in this area. Yeah, his foundation does amazing things right now. Mm-hmm. And so he was not a small player. He was a big fish in like this local pond. But then taking on you know Oprah, right. who's got such. Such right. influence, you know, beyond the Texas Panhandle, right. and so when you take that big influence and bring it into a smaller place like that, like it can, it can just dominate the field. It was eye opening, I think, for a lot of people in Amarillo. I think, but I think a lot of people never got past the fact that it was Oprah. Yeah, they they couldn't focus on what it was about, mm-hmm. the fundamental purpose of why we were there, because they got so excited about Oprah. And I have to admit, it's just entertaining almost to be in her presence because you think, oh, my gosh, yeah. Maya Angelou was there. Uh, Phil, Dr. Phil was there. It's like Patrick Swayze came. It's I like believe. all yeah. these people, and you're like, oh, my goodness, this is so natural almost for them to be here in Amarillo, Texas. But it was a great experience, though it didn't turn out the way I wanted right. it to. <laughs> okay, so let's let's kind of move uh, through your career after that moment. Um, what are some of the different you know, job transitions that, that you started to take? Once you maybe took some more risks or, or moved from the for-profit sphere into the non-profit sphere? I think okay, you're gonna you're gonna laugh when I tell you this. I think the creative side of my brain does not allow me to think things through thoroughly before I jump in with both feet. Okay. And it has served me well for some reason. And a couple of the big risks that I have taken have turned out to be two of my greatest pride and joy achievements. And One of them, and I don't know if you'll remember this, but we had an opportunity when I was at the ballet in 2007 to launch a brand new Nutcracker. And I wanted to preserve Sybil B. Harrington's legacy and her vision and her love for the ballet, but I wanted to take the ballet to another level that was beyond what Amarillo was accustomed to. Okay, And it was funny because we met with a, a Walt Disney set designer, and we met with a nationally known costume designer and with a choreographer from a big ballet company. We brought in big players to help us put this new Nutcracker together, and they had to call me out because I said, our Nutcracker is so beautiful. Here, let me let you see pictures from our Nutcracker, and let me tell you what my favorite parts were. And they said, stop. If you're going to take the risk and create a new production, something Emerald has never seen, let us do our jobs. Hmm. And I thought, okay, this is where a risk comes in. 
is to let the people around you who are really good at what they do do what they do best. And it turned out to be magnificent. And we did a fantastic job raising a lot of money. But I think we still kept the integrity and the vision of Mrs. Harrington intact while we did it, which was my main goal. Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't realize that, that when you have somebody, a benefactor like Mrs. Harrington, who says, I want to fund the Nutcracker for, you know, so many years, like sometimes there are some some guidelines or some some rules. She wants it to continue to be this thing. And so you you want it to grow and continue to evolve, but it also needs to stay within that original vision. Yes. Because that vision is why she gave the money. Yes. And so you're you're taking risks and you're pushing the envelope, but like you can't push it too far uh, because you don't want to go against her original wishes. You're exactly right. And coupled with that is the fact that she's no longer with us. Mm-hmm. And it's easier to step away or expand beyond her vision when there's no one there to tell you you can't. So that's when integrity without compromise comes into play because you have to say, wait a minute, this is what Mrs. Harrington wanted and this is the way it needs to be. And you have to remind people of that along the way right. a little bit. And there's still people who care about her legacy. Um, yes. And you know, you'll, you'll hear from people if you go too far. Yeah, me. Yes. <laughs> you are me. those people, right? I am so. one of those people. But I will tell you another one of the things, the second thing that I'm just, I'm so proud of and I enjoy about as much as anything I've ever done is the power of the personal engine. Hmm. It's kind of for several reasons. I, I'm a networker. I love bringing people together. I love watching them work together. I love people seeing each other when they haven't seen each other in a while. But more importantly, what the Institute does is so ingrained in who I am now. I've been there 12 years, over Mm -hmm. 12 years, and I absolutely am so passionate about the work at the Institute. And Power of the Purse allows me to take that mission into our outreach so that we're helping more and more people every day. And we have done so many big, wonderful things with the Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center to help women. And when I say we help women, it's bigger than that Mm -hmm. because women are the ones that make most of the medical decisions in their households. And they're pushing their husbands to go to the doctor when and their children. And sadly, they're usually taking care of themselves last. Hmm. And you know, it's like when you're on an airplane and they tell you to put your oxygen mask on first, but your instinct is to put it on your children. Right. You can't take care of your family if you don't take care of yourself first. And so that's why a Women's Health Institute is so important, not just in this community. We're statewide. But we are trying to take the proceeds from this wonderful lunch and apply it so that women are taking care of themselves and then it's enhancing the care for their families after that. So it's multifaceted, but it's one of my favorite things to do. So I, I don't want to assume uh, when you speak about Power of the Purse, you speak about the Institute where you are now the executive director, like that, that listeners always know exactly what that is. So tell me about um, the Laura Bush Institute and, and sort of how it developed here in Amarillo and then how you came to be involved as a leader there. And this is interesting because when Mrs. Laura Bush was first lady, she didn't know anything. We literally, not we, the chancellor of the Texas Tech, Kent Hans, and the founder of the Laura Bush Institute, Dr. Marjorie Jenkins, they went to D.C. and sat down with her and said, we have a vision. We have she an was idea. first lady at the time. She was first lady at the time. And they sat down with her and said, we have this idea. 
And they said, we want to take care of women in Amarillo, beyond into West Texas, and beyond into Texas, nationally, internationally. Hmm. Big picture thinking. There's where risk comes in. Yeah, They didn't have a mission statement. They didn't have any goals. They had a vision and an idea, and that was it. But when you talk to Mrs. Bush about taking care of women in her hometown, in her home state, in her nation, she just she just gets so passionate about it. She said, I'll do it. So giving us her name has opened more doors than you can ever imagine. And having the backing with the Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center right. coupled together has allowed us statewide and nationally. You know, there are 300 and it's like 364 institutes around the world that are using our sex and gender curriculum for their medical students. Mm -hmm. It's a big endeavor for Mm -hmm. us because not only do you have to develop the curriculum for sex and gender medicine, but you have to maintain it and you have to market it and you have to encourage it. And we've done that really well. But Mrs. Bush is involved. She comes to our national advisory board meetings. I laughingly call it the what is it? The old tax commercials, E.F. Hutton. Is that yeah, what it was? when E.F. Hutton talks, yes, everybody listens. That's the way it works. And she listens. You know, she's very intelligent. She's an astute woman, and she sits there, and she listens to the reports, and she formulates questions and ideas, in her, and when she starts talking, the whole room gets quiet. Hmm. It's like, this is Mrs. Bush. We're going to listen to her. Whatever she says is what we're going to do. Her name's on the building. So. Yes, yes. But she's a fascinating woman. She's a very, she has a lot of integrity. I think that's what I like the most about her. But she's worldly beyond what any of us realize. But she can focus that worldly down to what we need in a meeting and what we need for this institute. And it just started evolving. We do, we fund a lot of research across Texas, mostly on sex and gender medicine, but sometimes on many forms of women's health. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we develop and maintain the education curriculum for sex and gender medicine. And then the way we look at it is that we can do the research. We can tell you why Ambien's not good for women right? at the same dosages as it is for men. We can train our medical students, and with CMEs, we can train our medical clinicians to realize that there are differences between men and women. But if we don't get the message out into the community so that you and I both know that, and you go to the doctor and somehow he missed the message, your wife may go in with heart attack symptoms. That doctor may say, you're not having a heart attack. It's anxiety. Go home and take a nap. She's having a heart attack, but he doesn't know her symptoms are different than yours. And so our message is so important. That's why we spend so much time and so much money doing outreach. And that's fascinating to me because you, you mentioned that, and it seems obvious that there are going to be differences between men and women and how they present certain diseases and how a medication affects them. But like that was not a part of medicine no. for a long, long time. Like It's just recently that, like you said, doctors and institutes like yours are starting to further that narrative because research and development didn't really distinguish between male and female when it was, you know, testing whether these pills work or not. When you consider um, bench to bedside, so bench is in the beginning when you're using um, maybe animal trials, even human trials, they never used women. 
And they didn't use women because of hormones and because of cycles and because they didn't feel like they were getting good conclusive evidence from women. And two examples is I mentioned the Ambien, you know, 10 milligrams of Ambien is what they were giving everyone. And I watched both of my parents on it. Both of my parents were relatively, you know, small. Mm -hmm. My father was getting up the next morning after the eight hours of prescribed sleep and he was running over curbs and hitting stop signs, and my mother never woke up. And it's because she was getting the same dosage. And they said women were getting up in the middle of the night and eating the pantry out of down to nothing, and they'd get up the next morning and wonder who'd been in the kitchen. Finally, the FDA, after 20 years, realized, mm-hmm. well, maybe there's a difference here. Yeah. So the dosage for women is half of what it is for men. But even osteoporosis, men don't get screened for that. Women get screened because it's perceived as your grandmother's disease. Right. You think of this cute little old lady with osteoporosis. Well, men are more likely to die from an osteoporotic hip fracture, but they may not know they have osteoporosis because no one screens them for it. Hmm. And so it's just those differences that are so terribly important. If we're going to maximize what I call personalized or individualized healthcare, and we're getting better, but it's just that awareness factor. What year did the Institute actually start? 2009 was when we were trademarked with her name. Before that, for like 12 years before that, it was a Women's Health Research Institute. But when it became the Laura W. Bush Institute early, early in 2010, so we've been hitting the ground running really hard now. Okay. What year did you start working there? Late 2010. Okay. So it was around the time, though, that... They'd been around almost a year, but they were still developing and creating their boards. And the crazy thing was is that it founded in Amarillo, and then it soon started branching out on other TTUHS campuses around Texas. And within a matter of six, nine months, we already had like five other campuses following the same mission, vision, right. and goals that we established in Amarillo. So say, what's the relationship between the one here in Amarillo and the others? Like, is is it different spokes of a center wheel, or are they all kind of doing their own thing and you're doing your we, own thing We here? kind of have generic programs. Like, we'll develop a program because so many of them developed in the early days. Mm-hmm. We do a girl power program, which is so fun. It's 10 to 14-year-old girls and their moms. Okay, It's kind of a bonding experience. We do programs for incoming freshman girls on the college level. We do a Day of the Woman for professional women. We do lunch learns. And then every campus does a fundraiser. But most campuses will take the basic template that's already developed and then turn it into something that benefits their community. Communities are all different to some extent. You know, Corpus Christi, we do a lot of the same events down in Corpus Christi. And that community is a little smaller than Amarillo, but it's the exact same people. Interesting. It's easy to take our programs and say, here's the template, the time length, the budget, the artwork. You tell me how it fits into your community. And then it just, it's it's always successful. Hmm. They all are really well received in the community when you make it part of the community and part of the people. So we do really well with our programming. We do a lot of it. How did you end up in your role? Like, did, were you aware of what was happening uh, and, and kind of found your way to it? Or like, how did how did that happen? It was a friendly connection, actually, okay. is what it was. Laura Street's one of my best friends. And she called me one day and she said, can we talk? 
I said, sure. I knew nothing about academic medicine, but the thought of taking something that profound to me that was you could tangibly see the effects that you were having on women and their families, I just jumped at the opportunity. I thought, this is this is challenging. It's a mm-hmm. risk. And this is something that I think I could do well with. I'm going to give you an example. From Power of the Purse Proceeds, one year we bought a machine. It's called a transcranial magnetic stimulator. Sounds fun. It's for people with high anxiety or medicine-resistant depression. Okay. It is. We we purchased it for the psychiatry department at Tech, and it's it's like a helmet. It looks like a big old-fashioned hair dryer, but the helmet is calibrated to the deficiencies in your brain that does not allow you to function optimally. Okay. And it's a thirty to thirty-five day session. It's you've you've got to be dedicated to it. My office is the very first office when you come in our building, and I can see patients coming in every day because they're here for 30 days. I literally, physically can see the improvement in these people. And talk about rewarding. I've had people stop in my office and say, they tell me that the Larbush Institute bought this machine, and I want to tell you what a difference it's made in my life. And you just you puff up like a peacock. Yeah. It's like this is why we're here is to help women and their families. Because you know, if that woman goes home and she doesn't have this crippling anxiety where she can't get out of bed or leave the house, now she's buying the groceries for the family and she's taking the kids to school again and she's meeting with her neighbors and it there's nothing that feels better than that. Yeah. It's so really much of rewarding. a family's quality of life can be impacted just by a single yes. person in yes. that leadership role. Yes. I wish we could do it for everyone. Yeah. Well, but you think that if that, you know, this hairdryer thing is so effective and it sounds kind of space age, but like I have heard about it and how it, it works. And like you just think, why, why is that not everywhere? You know, uh-huh. why are we not using it more? Well, the main reason we're not using it more is because it's full time. They've maxed out how many right. patients they can see, how many people they can see in a day. It's just, I wish there was, I wish everyone could use them, but our psychiatry department tech is amazing. And that's another one of the missions of the Larbush Institute. I'm a huge mental health proponent. So any way we can help people along the way to better their mental health, where we just, that's one of the things that just makes us feel like we're making a difference yeah. if we can make people feel better. I want to hear about the difference since you came from, let's say, running a nonprofit like the Lone Star Ballet, and then you end up in this one that's medically focused. Does does directing a nonprofit translate when you're in different <laughs> categories like that? Or did you have to learn a lot of new stuff in order to, to do a good job with the Laura Bush Institute? I'll tell you what it is. One of the things is nonprofit is nonprofit. It can be the arts. It can be education, like where I am now. It can be one of the many. You know, there's over 1,800 nonprofits in in Potter Randall County, and I'm thinking, that's a lot of passion out there, people who are working their tail feathers off to make a difference in this community and beyond. But nonprofit is nonprofit. If you believe in the mission, you know how to develop the vision and the goals and to put policies and procedures in place and to direct people and most essentially to build the right advisory board mm-hmm. with the right people and then to develop people who believe in the mission like you do that come in as your volunteers, as your donors. That's how you build a machine. 
It doesn't matter if it's at the symphony or the little theater or the ballet or the opera. Those are the what. It's the same thing in academic medicine, what we're doing at the Larbush Institute. It's essentially the same thing. But then along the way, you also have to make sure you're keeping up with the trends. Yeah. You have to make sure you're... I don't well, need... New research, too. I mean, yes. that's always changing. Absolutely. And and for me as a spokesperson, I don't want to tell you something incorrect. I don't want to tell you Ambien's not good for your wife to take it 10 milligrams, and she goes back and tells her doctor, and he says, she's wrong. Yeah. I have well, to but make, Angela told me, right? Right. But she said, right, you, so you can't do that. But... I just feel like if you get, if you, I've always told my children, you surround yourself with people that make you happy and make you the most protective and lift you up. And if you can do that in life, whether it's working for a nonprofit or starting your own business or taking a risk and, and, and quitting a job with all the benefits and saying, I'm going out on my own, that, that's how you do it. You take your tribe with you and you take your support with you. And then you learn along the way and, and don't quit expanding. It's easy to quit expanding the older you get. I understand that. <laughs> um, I want to give you a chance to talk about this year's Power of the Purse because I know it's it's sort of your signature event. I know it's coming up in April this year? April 13th. Okay. Tell me what's in store for this event. I strive every year to bring a speaker that is appealing to a general audience because Power of the Purse, is it's, it's almost bigger because of this incredible committee that we have. It's bigger than just the message. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I mentioned the networking, and we're raising money, and we're doing good things for women and their families, but people want to hear a good message. Yeah. There have been so some really interesting speakers in the past. There been some great speakers. I'll tell you, Marley Matlin was one of my favorites. We did the entire luncheon around sign language mm-hmm. and, and deaf and people that were hard of hearing, and... It just, it was so rewarding. It was so interesting. And she was a delight. I want her to adopt me because I just fell in love with her. I just, her and her interpreter, Jack Jason, they're, <laughs> they're rock stars. Last year was probably one of my favorites. Of course, when Mrs. Bush is here, that's always my favorite because I love to hear her message. And she can encourage people to raise money better than most. Sure. Tim Tebow was. He was more than I expected in every good way possible. He's such a pure person, a Mm -hmm. pure heart. His upbringing is so interesting because his parents were missionaries. And I literally was in a one-on-one conversation with him thinking, oh, my gosh, I've got 15 minutes with Tim Tebow. I've got to get all my questions about sex trafficking out there because it's one of his passions. Mm -hmm. But I made arrangements for our local um, Down syndrome group to come in and visit with him. He dropped me like a hot potato. Yeah. When they walked in the room, he hopped up and he ran over there and he was loving on them and signing their little Nerf footballs and hugging their necks and taking pictures. And <laughs> I've never felt so cast aside as I did in that and moment. Rightly so. I mean, good for him. <laughs> yeah. You know? He's really a remarkable, remarkable man. But this year we're bringing in Elizabeth Smart and... I was aware of her story when it happened. Yeah, I remember it too. And to me, as a mother, thinking that my daughter was abducted in my home, in her bed, in a bedroom with her sister sleeping, and where her sister was threatened, my mother's heart just can't handle it. Yeah. But Elizabeth Smart has spoken for us before down in San Angelo for another event. And at that time, this was like 10 years ago, 
she has blossomed so much. Now she's a she's a, a wife mm-hmm. and a mother, and she's a motivational speaker, and she's grown into it. I feel sorry for people like her who are thrown into the speaking circuit involuntarily. Right. Like, not everybody's I, equipped for that. Well, they're not equipped, and maybe emotionally they don't want to do yeah, it. Yeah. But she it causes has, her to relive all this trauma, you know, over and over and over again. But her message is hope. And when you read her books and you hear her speak and you realize, I'm upset about a paper cut from yesterday, and this woman is bringing hope to the table on a level that I've never had to deal with, I just feel like I'm superwoman. I can do anything because look what she's done. And so the feedback we're getting from the public on this is outstanding. People mm-hmm. are anxious to hear her story. I mean, it and, caught my attention when I saw she was a speaker. I was like, good. oh, wow, that, that's interesting. It's interesting when someone has a story that old that still resonates. Right, right. And I think that it, it has a different meaning even for her today because she's a parent. She's a mother. Yeah. And I think that has a whole different story. But when you hear her, she's going to talk a little bit about her story but she wants to also tell you how hope can help your mental health, tell you kind of how to make your life better because adversity is just adversity. It's just temporary and you move on. Hmm. So if she can do it, I can do uh, for it. For sure. I, I want to take advantage to, to kind of close out this part. Um, I know your focus is so much on women and women's health here in the Texas Panhandle. And you know, we were having a conversation before we started recording just about – you know, in, in recent years, I've seen a lot more women in business. I've seen a lot more women starting businesses, yes. taking leadership roles, but that hasn't always been the case, no. whether it's part of, you know, our, our bootstrapping ranching culture or conservative politics or whatever. Like women have not always come to the forefront here in this area, but have definitely held it together. You know, I'm there, there were there were pioneer women who we're keeping the families alive, you know, during the Dust Bowl years and yes. during all that stuff. What have you discovered working so closely with women just about their role in this culture and and maybe how that resilience, you know, how that grit has um, has kind of sustained the Texas panhandle? I mean, what, what have you seen in your work? I'm a big awareness person. I think anytime something comes to the forefront and becomes common knowledge and people are talking about it, like mental health and things that people are now openly talking about, women are no stronger today than they've ever been. Interestingly enough, I'm reading a book called Lessons in Chemistry, and it is based in the 50s about a chemist. She's Mm -hmm. female. And about all the adversity that she had to go through in her lifetime, and everyone kept trying to put an apron on her. Wow. And she was like, I'm not a cook in the kitchen. I'm a chemist in the kitchen. And you you think about hidden figures. You look yeah. back on that. And I, I think about the characters in that movie and how they evolved in learning how to accept the fact that these women are as knowledgeable, are as powerful, give them the opportunity and don't hold them back. But I love watching women come into businesses and positions of CEO now. And it's getting to the point almost where people don't think anything of it. Right, right. My hope, this is my hope, someday, and it's happening a little bit even in in, in Hollywood, they don't say actor or actress actress anymore. Mm -hmm. You're an actor. You're just an actor. I want someday for it to get to the point where we're all just human beings. Right. We're not a different race. We're not a different age even. I don't... 
you know, people are working later than ever before. If I want to work till 75 and my brain's still functioning, let me. Yeah. As long as I'm still being effective, let me. Somebody may need to sit me down and say, Angela, you've lost it. But until then, if I'm still effective, let me. But I think it's the awareness. I think people are more accepting than they ever have been. It's time. Mm -hmm. It's about time. I want to ask you why you've stayed in Amarillo. Because, you know, obviously you've had lots of opportunities. Um, You've worked in a lot of different positions. But, like, the things that you're doing, um, obviously, I assume have put you on the radar of maybe other organizations, statewide organizations. Mm -hmm. You may have had opportunities to leave here, but you're still doing this work here toward the end of your career, even if it does last to 75. So why, why have you stayed in this area? I would tell you the number one reason. There's two reasons. One is my family. And my parents are deceased now, and they lived in Pampa. And you know, even in the, their last years, I weekly drives back and forth, back and forth, back and forth to Pampa. And I kept telling my daughter who lives in Granbury, I said, I, I will never leave as long as my parents are here because they need me. So that was always, and my son is here. He's just around the corner. So family is, that's the most important thing for me. But secondly, I just love it. I love Amarillo. I love everything it has. I love everything it offers. I love the things that I think people in Amarillo kind of take for granted mm-hmm. a little bit. And that's a bit of a frustration for me because I want people to to see all the jewels that there are in Amarillo. And I get almost every almost everything I need right here in Amarillo, Texas. So I love it. Why shouldn't I just stay? This episode of Hey Amarillo is supported by SKP Creative. I asked the team there what they wanted to communicate, and they want to remind listeners that the May elections are coming up here in Amarillo, with the entire city council and the mayor's position on the ballot. There are also seats open for the AISD board, for Amarillo College Board of Regents. This general election is May 6th, 2023. And if you haven't yet registered to vote, now is the time to do it. So go to votetexas.gov and get registered. Thanks again to SKP Creative online at skpcreative.com. This episode is also supported by Jimmy John's Gourmet Sandwiches, which has three locations here in Amarillo. Jimmy John's is a national sandwich chain, but all three of the Amarillo locations are owned and operated by a local resident, Charles D'Amico, who you may have heard as a podcast guest in early 2022. Charles wants to remind locals to pay attention to the Jimmy John's app. They just introduced the popular red velvet cookie, and another new limited-time dessert is coming soon. Plus, there's a new sandwich about to release, and you'll find out about it on the app. So download the app and stay on top of these new releases. Thanks to the locally-owned Jimmy John's for sponsoring the show. Okay, I'm back with Angela Knapp Eggers. Angela, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon on the WT campus. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes many thousands of items in its textile collection, from 19th century quilts and blankets to a lot of old leather purses um, (laughs) to an incredible variety of women's dresses. There's a whole lot uh, in the stacks that you can't even see uh, on display. It's fascinating up there. Uh, But you can learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, when you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, what do you hope for? I'm going to be honest in my answer. Right now in the Amarillo community, I see this giving, caring community. And 
it's funny to say this. I think that generations are changing. Mm-hmm. And as the generations change and as generations get older and quit being as involved and as giving in the Emerald community, I'm hoping 10 years from now that I see that all the children and the grandchildren of these people who I still see as pioneers of Emerald are still carrying the torch. Right. That's what I'm hoping for. And that's something all nonprofits deal with is you you have a donor base or a support base or a volunteer base that is aging. Yes. And sometimes it takes a while for the next generations to kind of come along. And, and you just hope that that example passes from one generation to the next. I don't know that people here realize how fortunate we are in this community with the way people give and the way they care. But And it's beyond monetary. It's sweat equity, too. Mm-hmm. I I have the most incredible board that I've ever worked with, and it's it's women who aren't afraid to take a risk or they aren't afraid to put the work in. And I just I hope I still see that in 10 years. Okay, other than wind, what does this area have too much of? <laughs> When would have been my first answer? <laughs> I knew it, and that's why I took it off the table. Keeps it interesting. You know, I love Amarillo so much, and the only thing that that I guess I, I wish were different, I really hate the cold. Hmm. And the cold in the winter with all the brown, I just – someday, maybe when I'm 80, I, want, I may live someplace where it's greener. I just – this brown, I just – I don't like the brown. <laughs> And every time I start to feel that way in the winter, I remember that there are people who come to Amarillo because there are four seasons, you know, and and that's attractive to some people. Yes. Um, And so it's, you know, what I like is that by the time we get to this point in winter, I'm ready for spring Mm -hmm. and then I'm ready for summer and then I get tired of summer. I'm ready for fall. And I don't know if if we lived in Miami, like, would we get tired of it? I don't know. My sister lives in Florida and she does wish for that. But if, if it, weren't for that thing that we're not talking about because you already took it off the table, the cold wouldn't be so bad. I agree. I agree. (laughs) That can be really frustrating on a a really cold day. Okay, what does this area not have enough of? When I say this, I don't say it as any disrespect for any retailers in Amarillo because we have some remarkable retailers, and a lot of them are women-owned businesses. I wish in Amarillo there were more opportunities for shopping, and that's because I'm a big shopper. Okay. And I would love for Emerald to get to a point where people here don't feel like they have to drive to Lubbock or to Oklahoma City or even to Dallas or Albuquerque to shop. I want to be able to do it all right here because I think Emerald has so much to offer. Mm-hmm. So I would love to see an expansion in that area. But the timing right now is not great for that. Yeah. So it, it probably won't happen for a long time. Well, it's, and that's a bit of a surprise to me because I'm not a shopper and that's not my world. But like I always will be driving past, you know, a, a – a shopping center or a new retail environment. And I'll think, oh, there's like a boutique there. I've never heard of that one. And, and I feel like there are so many. And you're saying like, we we actually need more. Maybe it's more diversity, more kinds of products, bigger I places. I, I, maybe only shoppers would agree with me because I'm telling you, Emerald or retailers are doing a beautiful job. And when I watch some of these small, like the boutiques and some of these mm-hmm. to watch what they went through with COVID yeah. and come out the other end and see how, they got creative. They got innovative and creative in maintaining some form of shopping for people, even if it meant you call me and tell me what you want and I'll walk it out to your right. car. I just respect them so much for that. And so we're blessed with what we have, but I just don't want to have to go anywhere else. I just really would like to keep it all in Amarillo. Okay. Shop local. <laughs> yeah, for sure. When you talk to outsiders about Amarillo, what do you talk about? 
There's actually three things. And number one is it's always tourism. I Amarillo, Texas has more than people who live here realize. Yes. I think we take advantage of like the museum, Paladura Canyon, Wonderland Park, Cadillac Ranch. There's so many wonderful tourism opportunities, even if you just live here. I mean, how many people do those things unless company comes yeah, in and they're we take looking it for, for something to we do. And that's nothing new. People in New York City don't want to go they they just cringe if somebody says can go out to the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. Well, they shouldn't cringe. They should be proud of showing that off to their company. Secondly, the arts. I mean, my goodness, I've been in so many other communities much larger than Amarillo that don't bring to the table as much as we have right here in Amarillo. (laughs) And it's not just the ballet and the opera and the symphony and the little theater. It's all the museums. It's the visual arts. It's it's the the arts programs that they have at the Arts Institute or at, at WT. There's so much beauty in our area. And I learned this a long time ago, and it applies to Amarillo. If people stop and think about it, the arts brings more economic impact to this area than sports. All right. Because think about it. We don't we don't have a big it, – it's the same thing in Philadelphia. The arts bring more in Philadelphia in revenue than sports, hmm. which is just mind-boggling. And I, I know a lot of people are wanting to change – that playing field even, you know, hoping that uh, the new Kids Inc. development you know, yes. will bring more people for sports, hoping that Hodgetown will bring more people for sports. But I think you're right that there's yes. Yes. The, the things have, on the radar. There's so much to do here. And it's it's usually the younger people who say there's never anything to do. And I just laugh and I think, oh, my God, I, are you not even yeah. on social media? Pay, pay, attention, pay attention to what we have. But then the third thing is it's this community. I just... I love, love, love the people here. I love the generosity, and I've seen it, you know, in my many years of nonprofit management. I love these people, and they don't do it because they're obligated. Right. They do it because they believe in what you're doing, and even when times are difficult, they're the first ones to come and help, and I just I love that about this community. Okay. What's your favorite local neighborhood? That's hard. I love being outside. And I don't know that I can narrow it down to a neighborhood, any neighborhood that has a park mm-hmm. where you you may be driving through there, walking through there, whatever. I love it when people get out and you see people out walking and riding their bikes and pushing their strollers. And that's that's what feels like good community to me. I love the Meta Park area because I love to see people getting out and walking and pushing strollers and all of that. But then... Not necessarily a neighborhood. I love to see what's happening in downtown Amarillo. Yeah. I love to see the expansion of, it's not even so much an expansion of the arts, but the embracing of the arts because now there's more to do downtown. There's better hotel opportunities. There's a gazillion restaurants that people mm-hmm. don't realize. And so there's love, murals in public art. All these public arts. Yeah. I love all the murals that are popping up everywhere. And I just, to me, that almost makes you feel like you're not in Amarillo anymore. Okay. What's your favorite local restaurant or food truck? That's not a very nice question. <laughs> you know, I love Public House. I think that's okay. probably one of my favorites. I love Joe Tacos. I love McDonald's. I love <laughs> I, I'm a drive through girl, yeah. but I also like dining. I love macaroni Joe's. I just I don't know. We're really lucky here. I think we have. I'm. I have a very limited palate. I'm not big on some of the unusual little holes 
you know, to go to. But I need to branch out a little more. But I wow. do love Public House. Okay. <laughs> What's your favorite coffee shop? All of them, which is funny because I don't drink coffee. Okay. I love chai tea. And so it depends on, am I hot? Am I cold? Mm-hmm. Am I having a meeting? Am I meeting a friend? I generally, I love roasters. I They've been around forever. Mm-hmm. And I love that community ownership. I love Palace Coffee because I love the way they embrace the community and their decor and their outreach and their giving. I love the way they do that. And then I'll go to Starbucks. I'll go to Dutch Brothers. I go to Scooters. I go to all of them. Okay. You're one of those people that sustains all the different coffee I shops. I do. I do have. without drinking coffee. All right. So you, you mentioned Cadillac Ranch. When was the last time you visited Cadillac Ranch? I actually took two of my grandchildren to Cadillac Ranch last summer. Okay. And it was one of the most enjoyable things I have seen little ones do. And I think it's because there's an element of, oh, my gosh, I can get dirty and it's okay. And to just, it it cracks me up to see the 9,000 layers of paint on Stalactites of paint. Yes. But it's so interesting to look at it. And even my grandson, Jack, he found his name on one of the cars and so he went over the spray can and rewrote over it and did his name again. And we just had a really good time out there. It was fun. Okay. Well, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would like listeners to know about or to experience? In Amarillo? In Amarillo? Around Amarillo? You know, I think, I don't know that it may, I, I would love to see people get more involved. I would love to see people come you know, we're still recovering from COVID. Yeah. I want them to recover more aggressively. I want them to get out there and go back to the luncheons, go back to the networking opportunities, go back to the restaurants. I want to see them get back out there. A lot of people are. A lot of people still aren't going back to church. They're mm-hmm. still doing things online. I want to see people get more engaged again. And one of the things that I came away from my discussion with Tim Tebow that resonated with me so strongly is he said, if you'll choose significance over success, you'll never be left on the sidelines. Hmm. And I thought, that's what we all need to be doing. We need to be moving forward and making every tourism opportunity, every arts opportunity, every business risk, we need to make all of them bigger and better and quit hesitating, I guess. Okay. Those are good words. Angela Knapp-Eggers, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. I enjoyed it. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Angela for the interview. You can learn more about her work at the Laura Bush Institute, laurabushinstitute.org. And remember, the Power of the Purse Luncheon featuring Elizabeth Smart will be here in Amarillo on April 13th. Thanks also to Angelina Marie for editing this episode and to sponsors SKP Creative, Jimmy John's, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting the show. Hey Amarillo exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Wes Reeves, Patrick Burns, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 289. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.